presently, there is an evolution toward a more professional, traditional management structure within cannabis companies. And I think that the biggest misconception about, in particular, cannabis entrepreneurs is that sort of 20th century, 1980s, 1990s myth of the stoner, right? When you look at the cannabis entrepreneurs who are successful today, they almost all got their start in the black market. And they had to learn how to survive in the black market and then legitimize and then thrive. And so the intellectual skill sets among some of the more renowned cannabis entrepreneurs are every bit as robust and every bit as qualified as the titans you meet on Wall Street. And I think that there's a misconception that these businesses are still operated in some capacity as if they're black market businesses. They are not. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories and the cannabis segment that we have today in April. So today we have another special guest. We have Steve Gormley, the CEO of International Cannab Brands, along with our co-host of the day, Carlo Alvarez. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Hey, Steve. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I really look forward to having this conversation around this industry. Great. Fire away. I'm... Uh... I love talking about cannabis. So do I. That's kind of why I like uh, doing these kind of podcasts, to, just to get a little bit more information around this hidden industry, really. So I guess just to start, can you tell us a little bit about your career history and how you kind of just started the cannabis industry? Sure. I spent the bulk of my career working in private equity. I worked in a small family office that was Pacific Rim based. I went to graduate school in Asia. I speak Chinese. And my focus was largely the Chinese market. And then in 2012, I was offered a position as chief business development officer for a small publicly traded US-based data company. And it was a company that was looking to penetrate Chinese markets. And this company was traded on the OTC. At some point, the board decided in 2012 that they wanted to capitalize and exploit the growing opportunity in cannabis. And so the company pivoted and I opened up the market in California because I lived in California for almost a decade. I had a number of good contacts. And from there, the rest is history. I bought, owned, and operated a hydroponics retail gardening supply enterprise through that public company venture. I built a network of cultivators and manufacturers, legal experts, including the judge that came down off the bench to write the law that governed marijuana businesses in Los Angeles right up until 2016, before Measure M was passed. I built a network of experts in dealing with the cash management issues, dispensary operators, license holders, you name it, lobbyists, and eventually really integrated myself into the community. I then went on to become a cultivator myself, 
Uh, I learned that I have a black thumb. I could kill a redwood, but I learned how to actually properly vet cannabis. And I started to really study the plant. It became clear to me during that time period that there existed an opportunity in cannabis that we hadn't seen in the U.S. since the repeal of alcohol prohibition. And I think for people getting in the market now, it would be like getting into the alcohol markets three to five years before alcohol prohibition was repealed. And people like Joe Kennedy, JFK's father, who were the beneficiaries of that shift in the regulatory market, that intersection between a new burgeoning business and regulatory change. And there's always tremendous economic opportunity. I then eventually went on to launch a private equity firm that rolled up dispensaries in California. I am also part of a company in Michigan that recently achieved its pre-approvals for licenses to operate marijuana businesses in that jurisdiction. I'm in Washington state. I've been in Oregon. And now after being in the market for seven years, I'm widely considered a veteran like most people. And so you're going to continue to see a proliferation of people who had gotten their starts on Wall Street, and in the case of Canada, on Bay Street, jumping into this tremendous market and really exploiting the variety of different economic benefits of being associated with the right cannabis play. So that's really my background. Right now, I'm the CEO and a, a director on the board for International Cannabrands, which is a publicly traded cannabis company that trades under the ticker symbol Juju, J-U-J-U, on the CSE. We're rolling up brands. We're a brand play. And we're also acquiring businesses that support vertical integration like cultivation and manufacturing. So that's what I'm up to. And that's kind of been the trajectory of my career. Wow, that was a very interesting backstory. Thank you so much for sharing that. I guess when you talk about your time in Wall Street and you know being a veteran, just on that point uh, in contact with like a lot of CEOs in cannabis, what are some cash flow issues that you're finding in cannabis at this moment? So culturally, at the point of retail, which right now is largely at the dispensary level, culturally, consumers are used to simply paying in cash. And I think that cultural aspect of purchasing cannabis products will continue to remain in place for some time. Now, there are a variety of different dispensaries that do accept certain types of credit cards, credit cards that are backed by local banks that aren't necessarily FDIC-backed banks, credit cards and debit cards that are supported by credit unions. Credit unions have really stepped in where the federal banks have fallen. But one of the shifts in policy that we're grateful for is recently, as you may be aware, the House voted to take a look at changing bank policy and provide banking services for marijuana businesses. So right now, the cash management issue continues to be very real. If you are a big dispensary, generally you're going to employ the services of armed guards. You're going to employ the services of armored car providers who will transport your cash from the point of sale, from the retail environment to whatever banking mechanism or whatever repository you have for your cash. There are banks increasingly getting involved. A lot of state banks in places like Washington, Nevada, 
Oregon, California, but we have yet to see a major bank jump into the industry. And that's simply because the uh, prohibition on marijuana and its classification as a scheduled narcotic still remains intact. Now, we operate under presently is the Cole Memorandum. And that was authored by Deputy Attorney General James Cole, who served under Eric Holder. And in August of 2013, he authored the famous Cole Memorandum, which really guides the federal government's view on how and where to prosecute marijuana businesses. The Cole Memorandum stated that the federal government would not pursue prosecution of marijuana businesses that were operating within their state regulations in jurisdictions where the electorate or the legislature had spoken and decided to legalize at the state level cannabis-related businesses, except under two circumstances. One, the sale of any kind of product to minors, which of course was a big loss to the Charlotte's Web community, the CBD community, where parents were desperate for CBD-related products to treat their children for epilepsy and other pediatric seizure disorders. The second component of the Cole Memorandum was interstate commerce. And I go into this lengthy explanation because that's an issue for building brands, but primarily it's an issue for banking, right? And for cash management. So right now, that's a long explanation to tell you there are some banks that do it. It's a very limited number. There are also uh, credit unions that have stepped up and have gotten involved and have and have uh, you know really paved the way for what will become, I think, the banking structure for uh, you know and what will become the banking structure for cannabis businesses going forward. I think that it's very important to also understand that there is a shift in thinking in the federal government. And I think that this is one of those few issues that enjoys support from both sides of the aisle that everybody can really get around. Because of course, the libertarian wing of the Republican Party strongly supports the development of cannabis businesses. They're traditionally very hands-off when it comes to a business as robust as the uh, cannabis market that creates as many jobs as the cannabis market does. And then, of course, you've got the Democratic wing of the party that really wants to take on the very racist laws that center around marijuana regulation. And then, of course, on both sides of the aisle, you have medical advocates who believe strongly, as we do in International Cannabrands, that people who suffer from illnesses best treated by marijuana products should have safe and legal access to their medicine. But again, I want to point out the March 28th vote of the House Services Committee that approved H.R. 1595, 45 to 15. It was a bipartisan Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act, which would prevent the federal government from punishing financial institutions for providing services to cannabis businesses operating in compliance with their their jurisdictions and their state laws. And so these are watershed moments. And this one just happened. So that's a really long, drawn out answer. Uh, I probably answered a number of questions with that re reply.
No, that was that was really interesting. Thank you so much for your explanation. It's interesting from your point of view on the banking and how you know some banks are just slowly starting to get into this, but I, I really feel that they'll see the benefits of working with these cannabis because they bring so much cash flow. In terms of financial controls, what's the biggest misconception about the cannabis industry that you find? Presently, there is an evolution toward a more professional, traditional management structure within cannabis companies. And I think that the biggest misconception about, in particular, cannabis entrepreneurs is that sort of 20th century, 1980s, 1990s myth of the stoner, right? When you look at the cannabis entrepreneurs who are successful today, they almost all got their start in the black market. And they had to learn how to survive in the black market and then legitimize and then thrive. And so the intellectual skill sets among some of the more renowned cannabis entrepreneurs are every bit as robust and every bit as qualified as the titans you meet on Wall Street. And I think that there's a misconception that these businesses are still operated in some capacity as if they're black market businesses. They are not. I mean, there's still the mom and pops that do. There's still certainly black market marijuana sold throughout the United States, particularly east of the Mississippi and in Texas. But I think the level of professionalism, they don't get enough accolades for that, in my opinion. And that's a common misconception. That's definitely something I found as well when trying to contact these um, interesting CEOs. In terms of cannabis companies need in order to scale to these giants, like what changes do you think they need to make in terms of like a financial process? Well, I'm going to be candid with you. I think that the cannabis stocks by and large are very tricky because most of them are predicated on hype. They're not actually predicated on traditional fundamentals like earnings and EBITDA. And so I think that as would be the case with any business, the cannabis industry, in particular the larger companies that are operating in the red, really need to focus on making their businesses profitable, streamlining operations, bringing in economies of scale, efficiency standards, standard operating procedures that support stronger fundamentals and transparency. I think that a lot of the larger companies, and I don't want to target anyone in particular, but when you review their financials, a lot of the larger ones are operating at large losses. They're not profitable. And so I think the same thing that happened during the dot-com era, where you had this onslaught of overpriced, overvalued stocks that did not have the businesses underneath them to support their valuations and their market caps, you know, we all know what happened there. It imploded. And you'll see some of that in cannabis as well. It will be those companies that have focused on building real businesses, those companies that actually generate earnings that will lead the pack at the end of the day. That's a really great point you brought up there, Steve. Definitely with the hype in cannabis, getting to profitability is a challenge for a lot of businesses that they still face. Maybe let's talk a little bit about financial operations and cash flow within cannabis. 
as a company skills, you might see, you know, like a mom and pop start with a general ledger, paper purchase orders and spreadsheets. But as they grow, they will adopt more mature processes and systems and eventually maybe, you know, hiring a senior finance leader like a CFO. Do you think this is a common trajectory? I think they're doing it already. I mean, in sophisticated markets like California, you walk into most legal dispensaries, and I'm only going to talk about the legal ones. And, you know, you walk in and your bud tender has an iPad and they know what you bought the last time you were in and they know what's in stock. And I think it's become quite sophisticated. I think the days of dispensaries keeping notes on paper and handwritten ledgers are long over. I think those dispensary operations and businesses that continue to comport themselves in that manner are not succeeding. And, you know, it's also a younger generation of entrepreneurs that are involved who are more tech savvy, who are more interested in inventory control and supply and management and supply chain management issues and all of that. I've seen, on the contrary, a big shift over the past seven years away from the kind of hallmarks of what you see in a black market business to the more transparent kind of reporting that's required to grow a real business. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think the transparency part, we've heard from a lot of uh, cannabis CPAs and cannabis CFOs, how they said that because um, under the government regulations, they must also have a compliance software that tracks every seed to sale um, within the process of cannabis cultivation and growth. I'm just curious because you've been the CEO. It's a little bit different from you know, being a CFO of the cannabis business, and you've also managed publicly traded cannabis brands. I'm curious on what the relationship looks like from a CEO's perspective and a CFO's perspective on taking a cannabis business public. Our business went public through an RTO, which is essentially a reverse merger in the Canadian market. And the Canadian markets, for obvious reasons, because their federal prohibition ended on October 17th of last year. Their markets are much more nimble and much more welcoming to cannabis businesses. And so all the same fundamental aspects of going public in any industrial category apply to the cannabis markets. If you're going to go public, you have to have the right shell. If you're going to do an IPO, you have to have the right bankers, the right capital raise the right assets, the right management team, I would say that all of those elements have to be the same. There isn't anything special about going public with a cannabis company other than the fact that it's very trend-driven. But at the end of the day, as the markets, the public markets in cannabis mature, especially in Canada, you will see a focus on fundamentals as you would with any other business and any other industrial vertical. The U.S. is different. We still have a federal prohibition on marijuana products in the U.S. And as such, U.S. companies that go public, which are largely on the OTC, are very limited. They're also exposed to market shorts. They're exposed to toxic lenders. They don't have the same protections that NASDAQ or Amex traded stocks do. They languish on the OTC. It's very challenging for them to uplist to the NASDAQ. I would be very hesitant to necessarily go public in the U.S. market unless you also had uh, were public in the Canadian market. That's largely what I would say on that subject. 
I guess from your business solution aspect, you provide uh, you know management services to and to these grow ops and, and vertically integrated cannabis companies. What are the most common challenges you found when working with them from a financial point of view? Well, at International Cannabrands, we don't actually provide just management services. We operate the businesses. But I have worked in the capacity of providing management services. It's generally the most common need is back office, right? It's legal. It's accounting. It's also strategic. A lot of times when cannabis businesses are growing, traditionally, they have just grown organically. Now we're in an environment where you can go through, grow through acquisition. Right. And so that's new for a lot of cannabis entrepreneurs, the ability to actually acquire another company that's synergistic to the existing company and that will help create tremendous growth for a particular business. And so with public companies, you also have the leverage of the stock, right? In negotiating acquisitions. And I think that that's very new for a lot of cannabis entrepreneurs. And so being able to partner with People that have Wall Street and Bay Street experience is incredibly helpful in that regard because there are business opportunities that exist in cannabis that have only existed for a year or so. And in some cases in Canada, have only existed since last October. So as the regulatory environment changes, so does the financial opportunities in, in, the, in the vertical. From an accounting standpoint, the biggest challenge that marijuana businesses have, and I see this particularly at the dispensary level and with some cultivation facilities, is providing audited financials. Because getting a good audit done on businesses that were largely black market as recently as five years ago is a challenge. While a lot of them were very savvy and sophisticated in how they managed their accounting, keeping those records when you're a black market operator is risky. And so providing audited financials is always, from my perspective as a CEO, one of the biggest accounting challenges I face when I'm evaluating whether or not to buy a particular company or how to value a particular asset. When you're auditing a company, what do you look for when you're looking to acquire a business? Well, you want to make sure that for example, at International Cannabrands, we're only buying profitable businesses, right? So you want to make sure that the businesses were profitable. There's nothing different in cannabis. There's no accounting principle that you would apply to any other business vertical that you wouldn't apply to cannabis. And it's an agricultural product, right? So when you're developing a brand and you're leveraging distribution and there's licensing protocol and taxes that you have to deal with, all of the same components that go into evaluating a norm, I won't use the word normal, but evaluating a non-cannabis business are applied to cannabis as well. And because it's an agricultural product, if you're in production, some facet of production, cultivation, or manufacturing oil, you're going to look at all of the same variables you would if you were producing kale, for example. So each business vertical has its own inherent costs and and issues. And so cannabis is the same, whether you're in production or technology or you're selling brands or you're in distribution or you're a dispensary operator, all of the same accounting principles apply. There's nothing that's really different. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's how I see it. It's like a lot of companies, like they're trying to become 
uh, with cannabis, they, they want to get their accounting systems in place. So I guess when it comes to mergers and acquisitions, as you mentioned, of other cannabis companies, how do you assess the financial health? What are the key metrics and key KPIs you look for? Profitability, whether or not the operator has the right to operate, really vetting licenses and vetting the entrepreneur's ability to operate lawfully in the jurisdiction where their business resides is the first component. Then auditing their financials. And then, of course, as is the case in acquiring any company, it's the management team. And it's running clean background checks because if you're building a large business with a view on a major public exit, the criminal history of the entrepreneurs involved, frankly, is very relevant. And a lot of successful entrepreneurs have criminal backgrounds for obvious reasons. Now, if somebody has a marijuana offense in their background, I'm less concerned than if it's a fraud or something else that would be prohibitive. But, you know, we take extra care in doing our background checks and really vetting management because that makes all the difference here. I completely agree on that part. Vetting the people behind the operations and the business is crucial. And, you know, what you've mentioned when cannabis transitions away from the gray market, it's really about being a legitimate business that is profitable, that will allow you to, you know, win in the game. Maybe let's chat a little bit about technology as uh, we've spoken to a few guests about the solutions market within cannabis. As a CEO, are there any particular software or tech solutions that a cannabis business can look into to make their operations more efficient? We've heard a little bit more about seat-to-sale and compliance software. Could you maybe give us some insights into that? I look at software solutions as in three basic buckets. There are software solutions that focus on cash management. There are software solutions that focus on point of sale. And there are software solutions that focus on production. On the... um, cash management piece, it's it's basically tracking the money, right? And tracking, uh, you know, from seed to sale, what happens with the product. Those are really important solutions to have. And there's a variety of different providers. And, and that landscape is always changing, as is inherently the case with technology. On the point of sale side, you obviously want point of sales technology that helps manage inventory, that helps upsell consumers at the point of sale, and that provides the bud tender, the salesperson, if you will, all the tools they need to extract the best experience possible for the consumer with the best margins for the business. And then when I look at software as it relates to production and cultivation and manufacturing of oil, I'm find very interesting technologies that reduce the cost of producing, for example, a pound of marijuana, and also technologies that focus on regulating CBD and THC content. What are some of the challenges within procurement and supply chain when it comes to cannabis are you finding? Quality product and pricing, just like any other business. All the procurement issues that you would have in any other retail business are the same for us. It's access to quality product that is either branded um, or has a consumer following and being able to deliver that to the consumer in a timely manner and having enough inventory 
of popular strains in stock. You know, it is, you know, procurement comes down to your relationships, right? Assuming you're not in the cultivation business. So it's having the right relationships with the right cultivators and and manufacturers. That's really interesting that you mentioned this because like we talk to a lot of cannabis CFOs and what they mention is they usually go for the same vendors all the time and they make sure that they're establishing those relationships really long term. This is one of our last questions. So I'm really curious on when it comes to tracking spend in a cannabis business, what are some mistakes that cannabis owners usually uh, take? I think that as is the case with any business, marketing is a tremendous challenge, right? And marketing cannabis businesses is very difficult because you are not in the United States allowed to use a lot of the traditional marketing venues. So for example, if you're a dispensary, you're limited on what you can do on social media. You can leverage Snapchat, you can leverage Instagram, you can leverage Facebook, but you have to be very careful in what you message to the public. You have companies like Weed Maps and Leafly that are at present the best option for marketing. And then events. You know, there's a lot of guerrilla marketing works. Leveraging influencers has increasingly become a popular way for cannabis businesses, particularly brands and particularly dispensaries and the cultivators of certain new strains of marijuana leverage internet influencers in the development of marketing programs for their assets. And so until prohibition is repealed, marijuana business owners are going to have a challenge in marketing their services. B2B services, it doesn't really apply there. Marketing B2B services is the same as it would be in any other business, but marketing directly to the consumer in cannabis remains a challenge. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation having you here with us, Steve. Just to leave our listeners on a good note, what's the greatest learning experience thus far from transitioning into the cannabis industry that you've taken? That is a really good question. And I would answer that by repeating the old adage that I heard from my mother growing up repeatedly, and that is, you cannot judge a book by its cover. Some of the most creative and intelligent and interesting people I've met in my career, I've met in the cannabis industry. I'm grateful for the shift toward professionalism in cannabis. I would like to see cannabis retain its diversity. There's a lot of middle-aged white guys getting in. And this is a business that was born off the backs of a lot of people of color who suffered the consequences of working in a black market disproportionately from their white counterparts. It's also a business that is sorely lacking in female executive talent. And I think in order for the industry to continue to legitimize and be a major international powerhouse, it must embrace female executive talent. But uh, having said that, I've worked with people of color, Armenians, Russians, and Persians, and Chinese, and it's such a diverse community at the production and and dispensary level, at least in Los Angeles, I've learned a great deal. I've worked with people from all over the world. I wasn't expecting that. I love how you mentioned the diversity aspect of cannabis and the future of what you think uh, would make it even more well-rounded. So thank you so much for sharing that. And as you know, this is a female-produced podcast, so we make sure that we have a diverse uh, range of guests on the show too. So that really correlates to our message. 
We are actively hiring female executive talent at International Cannabis. My last three hires have all been rock star women who are really pioneers in the business. And I encourage all of your female listeners who have any interest in cannabis to pursue it. We need you. We need your talent. We need your understanding of the consumer. We need your creativity. We need your pragmatism. We need your intellectual strength. Um, and I, I really encourage women with an entrepreneurial spirit to consider a career in cannabis. That's an amazing message. We'll definitely uh, link your website into the box below too, so that if any listeners are interested in getting into the cannabis business, that uh, you guys can look at what Steve is offering in terms of hiring and new positions at his company. And we're also always looking for new shareholders and new investors. And we're also really excited to share our story and share the wealth ultimately. So we encourage your listeners to also look at JUJU on the CSE and invest. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for giving your insights and expertise today. Uh, you've given us, the audience, a lot of expert values and valuable views on the regulatory landscape and the wonderful emerging industry of cannabis. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com. Spend Culture.